it's the middle of the night. You're a police officer, an expert in forensics, and you get that call, the call that you both hate and love because it's your passion, but you hate it because you know that somebody somewhere has been killed. It's your colleagues, and they phone and they say there's a body down in the street, in the park, in somebody's house, in somebody's car, and you got to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 or 4 or whatever time. You have to do it. That's your job and you go to the crime scene. What do you find? What do you see? How do you prepare yourself? And most importantly, how do you get your mind into that crime scene? I'm Declan Hill, and this is Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. My name is Declan Hill, and we're the producers here on the podcast. And this week, it's Eric Krebs, Aaron Griffin, Aidan Van Battenberg, and Ryan Decker. We're bringing you the mini-season to catch a killer. That is, we are looking at homicide investigators and how they build their cases against the murderers. And this week, we're looking at crime scene investigation, or how do detectives gather the evidence they need at the location of the killing? And our guest is the amazing Peter Valentine. Good morning, Peter. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Peter, let me just go through the, the introduction. It's the middle of the night. You get that call. There's a body. Somebody has found a body. There's some murder and you're gonna go out to that crime scene. What do you do? How do you prepare yourself? Well, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, th I think the first thing that people need to know is that I, I'm not given a lot of information when I first respond to a scene. I'm actually told probably just the address and the bare minimum of information to get me there. Sometimes I'll get a bit of a story um, about what we're responding to. And, and we have to be really careful about how much weight we give that initial story. Because as you can imagine, that story hasn't had a lot of time to develop. And the people who have cobbled together the information to share that story with me probably don't have a lot of investigative experience. And they're probably drawing conclusions without having all the facts. You know, hang so, on a second. I, I, sure. I don't understand in this case what a story means. So I'm a, a state trooper. I'm a, uh, a police officer in New York, New Haven, Los Angeles, London, Paris, wherever in the world. And I phone you. You're the expert. You're the guy that's going to come and help solve this case. What do you mean the story that I'm telling you? So this, and, and I say story because that's what it is to me at this point. It's not factual yet. It's simply somebody's interpretation. But I'll be given information about the case. So for instance, go to 123 Main Street for, like you said, the body and the side of the road with some what looked like cartridge cases nearby. You know, the neighbors called 911 because they heard gunshots and, and that's how the police responded. Or their police had pulled a car over and they saw a suspicious package on the side of the road. And when they walked over to investigate it, that's what they saw. So there's, there's a, a, a bit of information that you get that sort of starts the process. Like, how did we find ourselves doing this right now? And, you know, what's important about that story is obviously it's what 
alerts the police to the existence of this event, right? And I'm not even calling it a crime because sometimes, frankly, many times, what you're sent to isn't a crime at all. And that's one of your key decisions is, is this a criminal event or isn't it? So is it a suicide or is it a murder? That's the key. That's one of those key things that you got right away. Right. And we can even add to that and say, is it an accident? Is it a natural death? You know, one of the, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things is that sometimes there are single car crashes where a car drives into a tree and we hear about them, I'd say all the time, but often enough. And, you know, it's tragic. And, you know, there's this tendency to think of it as there was some kind of event, you know, they swerved off the road, they tried to get away from a deer or something like that. But sometimes there's a medical event that occurs in the car and it's a result of the incapacitation from that medical event that causes the car to crash. And so it's not criminal. It's not an accident. It's actually a natural event that has an accident associated with it. It's the the actual crash is the aftermath of the event. Correct. So, but it's, it's two, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. You've got this story coming at you over the phone and, and now you're proceeding to this potential crime scene, this, this event scene. What's the most important thing you bring to that, that scene? Oh, so I, I get this question a lot uh, because of my background as a forensic scientist. And, and I think the people asking always want to know what cool technology am I bringing with me? What instrument do I have that I'm going to bring to a scene? And, and the sad answer, but I'm very proud of it, is that I bring my mind. I bring my ability to to sift through all the information that we will be inundated with when we arrive. You know, and part of what makes the decision making process so difficult is that there's no value assigned to the information that you're being given. If a witness says something, does that statement have value, right? You want to think it has value because you believe the person who's saying it. But I also have to consider where they in a, were they at the vantage point where they could have seen what they said they saw. Or maybe they Do were they a participant. Have, maybe they were well, the actual killer. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of people think that if you insert yourself into an investigation as a witness, then you can't sort of have that designation change. So sometimes people will commit the crime and then call the police themselves because it'll create the appearance that I'm a witness, I'm a, I'm a victim potentially, I didn't do this. And because of that witness or victim sort of designation that person has, we never really consider them as being anything other than that. Uh, but I don't do that, and good investigators don't do that. We consider Very interesting. everybody... I, I'm and, just and, thinking it's going through my mind, Peter. I, I, I was going for a hike uh, last month in the middle of the COVID-19 thing, just in the forest. And I found this, this pile of earth that looked like an unmarked grave. So I did what every good citizen did. And I phoned the police and said, can you come? And they did. And now I'm thinking, crikey, maybe I'm on some police investigation oh. list and things. So a, a tip to remember, and, but I'm still glad that I did that. No, I, I, I'm glad you called, but yes, a good investigator would consider you not as a suspect. In, and there's this term that I don't really know the proper definition for, but person of interest. Right. right? And so right. do you hike often? How far off the trail were you? Is this hike or is this trail someplace that you've been to before? Or is this a time of day when people normally go hiking? Those are all reasonable questions for an investigator to ask. Interesting. Um, by the way, let me finish this. I, I think there was a brief investigation, and I think what they found was it was a deer 
that some idiot had gone off season and shot a deer and buried this in a suspicious looking mound of earth. But thanks. Just in case any of the listeners are thinking, hmm, maybe this is Hill's odd confession. Yeah, I'm not going for a hike with him. Back to the more serious subject here. What do you have a mental process? I mean, it's two, three, four o'clock in the morning. You've woken up, you know, you're searching around for your coffee or whatever, but do, do you have a way of cleansing your mind before it gets to the event scene? So yes and no. Uh, yes, there's a, there's a process, right? There's a, there's, when I leave that scene or when I'm finished with that investigation, I need to have some confidence that I've done certain things that should be done at every case. But at the same time, if I walk into a scene with what amounts to a checklist, whether it's a mental checklist or it's a physical piece of paper, I'm going to eventually miss something because I've created the wrong list or I've, I've grabbed the wrong list for what it is that I'm going to investigate. Uh, and so one of the challenges in, in crime scene investigation in particular, but investigations in general, is that each event is unique. As cliche as that sounds, it's unique. It might seem very similar to other crimes that you've investigated in the past. It might have the same kinds of participants. It might have the same <coughs> dynamic between the participants, which is why the, the crime occurred in the first place. But you have to create a, a checklist, if you will, that, that mental process specifically for that scene that you're investigating, no matter how much it seems like what you've done before. Hey, Peter, give and, me an example of what that checklist would look like. So I, I can almost break it into two sections. There's please, the, please, please. You know, what are the, what are the documentation uh, things that need to be done? Did I take good notes? Did I take the appropriate photographs of the scene? Did I measure, you know, key dimensions within the scene, you know, the size of the scene, where the evidence was related to landmarks and so on and so on. Did I video record the scene if I'm going to do that? But separate from that, but also part of it is that as the investigation develops and the universe of possibilities begins to winnow down into the handful yes. of still reasonable choices, have I gathered all the information that, are, that will allow me to explore those choices. Interesting. Right. Now, before we explore that issue, which is absolutely fascinating, particularly for, for crime fans like us, because you are the man that does it. I mean, we've read thousands of books, Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot, Sherlock Holmes, all the modern day guys, but you're the actual guy that's doing this. You're the actual man at the event scene, first of all, determining whether it's a crime, and then second of all, determining what happened. Not necessarily the why, but what actually was occurring there. But let's go back to your mind. What are the traps that you can get into, a bad detective, a bad investigator can get into, can bring a bad, quote, a badly prepared mind to an event, event scene? Uh, so I think, and I, wouldn't, I would almost push back on the idea of it being a bad investigator. Okay. You can have a very good investigator fall into a trap. Um, and, and, and you... I wouldn't say it's forgivable, but you can almost understand how it happens. And think about how, how in, in almost every facet of your life, experience is a valued commodity. You know, whether you, you consider experience in terms of how many times have you done it before or how well-trained or educated you are to do something, right? There's a value okay, right. in somebody going to do something that ostensibly knows how to do it. Right, which is how we would sort of frame the experience. 
So let's say we have a, I would say a good investigator, somebody who's done this hundreds, if not thousands of times. And they go and to what the are the scene. traps that he might fall into? Tell me those, please. So the, the trap there is, is that the scene that they go to looks, has aspects, and, and, and bears similarities to scenes they've investigated in the past. So and he thinks, ah, this is, I've seen this. This is like the Jones murder. Oh. Egg, right. And, and how many times has the movie started off with exactly that? Right. And so it's helpful to draw upon your experience because, you know, many times you might be right that it is the Jones case in a different environment. But what if it isn't? What if it just right. looks like the Jones case? Do you, do you guys, you know, is that a tunnel vision that, 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 uh, that an investigator can fall into? Is that the trap that they can get into? I, I certainly think it is. And I think, and, and we had talked about this before, I think there's some very potentially dangerous dynamics that go on at a scene that tell me about, tell us about some of those dynamics. Objective. And think about, uh, so, you know, think about how difficult it is to get to the career, sort of the career apex when you're investigating homicides, how you have to be a good, you know, police officer, how you have to be a good investigator, how you have to compete with others. And so you can imagine the driven, you know, very sort of uh, type A leader personality that finds themselves doing this kind of work. And imagine when you have a few of those people in the same place, because you do have, you know, it's not just one person investigating this, there's several. And I go to the scene and I say something out loud. This is, oh, this looks like a domestic. I kind of own that statement now, right? And do we as human beings feel comfortable admitting when we're wrong? I know I don't as a human. I don't think anybody does, right? If somebody says, hey, Pete, I think you're wrong. What do you reflexively do? You search for some information to try to validate and justify what you just said. And, but what if that other investigator brings up a very good point that should have caused you to reevaluate what you just said and what you're thinking about this case? And, and that's difficult because as human beings, we're, we're not very comfortable with you know, frequent changing of our mind, right? We say something, we kind of stick with it, right? It's almost a desirable trait, right? We value consistency in people, you know, and, and think about all the things that we associate with that, that sort of steadfast appearance. But that in a crime scene can be dangerous because if I form an opinion pretty quickly, well, of course it means it wasn't with all the information that was available. I couldn't have had that information yet. So I said something out loud. It was my, my knee-jerk reaction to what I was seeing, but now I kind of own it mentally. And when somebody finds something that contradicts what I said, do I accept it or do I instinctively react to it negatively and try to justify what I just said. So then you have those interpersonal dynamics getting in the way of the investigation. When we did our pre-interview, uh, Pete, you told me a story about having to eat your lunch alone one time. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, and I, I wonder, I don't think that was the only time I've ever had to eat my lunch alone, but you can imagine there's a group dynamic at play in play. And my, my, my niche, if you will, my, my expertise was, you know, I was the scientist going to the crime scene, you know, and, and from the TV shows and movies everybody watches, you would think that's how everybody does it. In reality, that's a really unusual combination of skills. 
And you would think that, and think about this, if all the people listening, think about what you think a good scientist is. Think about the personality traits, the attributes of that person, picture them. Now, separately, think about what a good detective looks like. Think about the attributes that that detective would have, the personality traits, and picture that person. Is there any overlap between those two? Probably not, and right, if you, if you think about a Venn diagram, there's a very small bit of overlap between those two people. To me, those were always the same person. I, I didn't understand that there was a difference. I didn't appreciate the difference in mindset, right? The personality traits that uh, each of those people exhibited. I thought that was like, that was me. It is me. And I thought that that comfortably existed in one person because that was who I was. Yes. And it turns out that that's not a normal combination of skills to have in one person. So, so what happened when you had to eat lunch? Yeah. So it was basically everybody else was thinking investigatively, right? So they were thinking like the detective. And I raised an objection because I was thinking analytically. I was thinking like the scientist. And what I was doing was I was essentially rejecting what they were saying, right? I was, I'm, I'm probing what they're saying with the idea of proving it wrong, which is how you conduct an experiment, right? We don't conduct experiments to prove ourselves right. We try to find the weaknesses in our hypothesis, what we think happened. And sometimes that created animosity because what I was suggesting tore everything down or it suggested a whole new approach to the scene that meant that we were gonna be stuck there for another day or two. And you can imagine, you know, there's a very visceral response to somebody's- Yeah, you're, you're essentially saying more work. It's more not just, work. Here's, here's another idea, but it's more work. Let, let me, let's unpack that uh, just for a second. You, you, you talked in this eloquent fashion about the Venn diagram and the difference between an investigator and an analysis. It, as you were asking myself and the listeners to do that, I was actually thinking, well, aren't they the same thing? Like, uh, you know, when you're investigating and the analysis, aren't those the same things? Tell me what is the difference in your mind? So to me, it's, it's the amount of information that you have. And so an investigator, think about when you think of it, well, what makes for a good investigator? A okay. good investigator can see small amounts of information, right? Slivers of information, and they can form grand conclusions about the barest of information, right? The, the typical hunch that we value in somebody, right? Hey, did you see the way that person put their hand in their pocket? That means something. You know, things that you and I wouldn't notice. A scientist does things the complete opposite way. We gather large amounts of data, Right? We, we perform our experiments over and over and over again until we feel comfortable that we've replicated our results enough times that we can say something very small but something significant about the phenomenon that we were researching. Done. Those are two very different approaches to problem solving. We value both at different times, but imagine how bad it would be if we had one mindset when we needed the other. Oh, you just right. simply need both. You need both skill sets coming onto that event scene. Tell me about the baby monitor. <laughs> yeah, so we had, we had this case where uh, it, it was a con confusing case to begin with. 
Um, and and the, the, the long and short of it was that we had two houses to search. And one search was going to be very involved because it was the, the house where the crime occurred. And the other house was one that was tangentially related to the crime. It was a neighbor's house where it was understood that the suspect had access to it. And the neighbors otherwise, as best we could understand, had no relation to the event. They, they were completely innocent. In fact, they didn't know what the relationship was between the perpetrator and the victim. And so they were, as, as best we understood, innocent. And they were inconvenienced because we had to make them come back from vacation so that they could let us into the house because we were getting into the house on consent. And there was a, a, a lot of, you know, we, I, I, rightfully so, we felt bad that we were inconveniencing the neighbors. And so there was this thought that, well, before we search the main house, let's search the neighbor's house so that we can get them back on their way so that they can go back on vacation. And I objected to that because we hadn't searched the main house yet. And so my, my, the, the core of my objection was, I said, I don't know what I'm going to be searching for in the neighbor's house because I haven't been in the primary crime scene yet. And the analogy that I, I think I used then, but I certainly would have used it now, is that I said, you know, you're, you're giving me a book and I'm flipping to page 257. I have no way of understanding who the characters are and what the context is. And so if I search the neighbor's house first, I don't know what I'm looking for because I don't know what its relationship would be to the crime. I have to read the book, which is the main crime scene, before I can flip to an individual page, which is the neighbor's house, and understand anything. And so there was so pushback there, on this idea, wasn't there? Oh, there was a lot of pushback because we had already been at the scene for about 12 hours. And what I was suggesting was going to add another nine or 10 hours to the 12 hours we still had left. And this was on a, you know, it was over the weekend in the summer and you can imagine people have plans and they were, you know, and so it was an unpopular choice. And also we were going to be, you know, reneging on a promise that we made that I didn't make, but that somebody had made to the neighbors that we were going to take care of this and you could get back on your way. And I would say, no, we can't do that. Right. Um, Forget your lives. We're cops. We're investigators. We got to do the job right. What did you find? What was so, so interesting about doing it that way? Yeah. So there was this phrase that we heard. It was a witness statement uh, and we didn't quite understand what it meant. The perpetrator had said as he barged into the house, I heard what you said about me, which contextually was just an odd thing to have specifically remembered in the statement. And so we kind of wondered quietly, what does that mean? So during the search of the house, uh, and you know, if you're doing thorough search, you, you change the, the condition of the house, right? You move furniture, you open cabinets, you know, you really tear the house apart yes. uh, at this point. And so as I pulled the piece of furniture away from uh, the, in the living room, I found a baby monitor and it was a transmitter for a baby monitor. And the, it was an old stereo rack system, if you remember what those are. And so it had, a, an, a it had an unswitched power source in the back of the, the rack unit. So the cord of the baby monitor was wrapped around the unit itself, and it was plugged into this unswitched outlet. So it was hidden inside the rack unit where you wouldn't have seen it. And it was always on because it was on an unswitched power source. And so the the 
occupants of the house didn't have children small enough where a baby monitor contextually would have made any sense. Yes. And none of us had seen the receiver. We only saw the transmitter. So I, I stood near the transmitter and I was speaking out loud and I said, tell me when you hear my voice. And we all fanned out and we searched, you know, we walked around trying to figure out where the other part of this baby monitor system was. And it turns out it was in the neighbor's kitchen. Interesting. Interesting. Where, and if you had searched their house first, you just would have seen a baby and not put the two together. But having done it in the right order. Peter, you're a modest guy. Tell me one of the times you got it wrong. Oh, I would say I get it wrong. And, and, and I would actually, it's not that I get it wrong. I offer up a hypothesis that we all reject. Okay. And sometimes that is framed as being wrong. But the way that I would prefer that we think about it is that we evaluated a scenario and we rejected it because the evidence didn't support it. I, I remember in doing my research, uh, somebody said, Peter has a hundred different ways of saying, I don't know. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and if you stay with me long enough, uh, you won't hear it twice. I'll say it a different way every time. What did uh, they you mean and I by are that? of the same age, Declan, where it's like, I'm a magic eight ball. You shake it. And every time you shake it, it comes up with a different version of, I don't know, but you'll and, never hear it what, the same what, way twice. What did they mean? Like when you're on one of these potential crime scenes and you're saying, I don't know in all these different ways, what, what does that mean when an investigator says that? So it, and to be fair, it's not that I don't know. It's what I, what I want to say is that I don't have enough information to say something yet. And, you know, and, and I, for the, for almost everybody I worked with, I have the utmost respect for, I worked with some amazingly talented people who were great at things that I wasn't good at. So there's very much this symbiotic relationship between all of us. I was the scientist. I was the, you know, the, that, I was the forensic yes. expert yeah. at the yeah. crime yeah. scene, which, but, but you're still saying, I don't know. So, and, and you're saying it differently every time. What do you yeah, mean? So, what, what are they? So you can imagine that at a scene, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm not me. I'm another detective. I, I have the traditional law enforcement background. I work at crime scenes. Right. I know I have this person, Pete Valentin, who's a forensics expert. So I'm going to ask him a question about a piece of evidence. Hey, that bullet hole in the wall, can you figure out, is that a 45? That hole looks really big. Oh, yes, it, it does. But I'm not in a position where I can tell you that that hole had to have been made by a 40 cal 45 caliber bullet. I haven't measured it yet. And even if I did measure it, the diameter of the hole is not useful enough. It's not precise enough where I could use that diameter and infer the size of the bullet that must be in the hole. So I'm saying, I don't know, not because I'd want to dismiss you outright and say, no, you're wrong, or yes, you're right. I'm not at that point yet where that's the next thing for me to do. And even when I do it, I can't be sure that the data that I gather will allow me to draw the conclusion you want me to make. And there, I presume, on the 48-hour time clock, you know, if you don't, that traditional thing in investigation, if you don't solve the murder within 48 hours, so they're like, come on, come on, come on. We need evidence. We need answers quickly. I don't know, you know, bring it to us faster. 
Yeah, there's definitely that part of it. And, and I would say there's another part of it is that, you know, for, for many people who don't have the, the forensic science background that I had, how, the way that you learn this is through training. Right? And many times the training just gives you enough information that you become dangerous. Right? We break down incredibly complex topics into digestible, checklist-driven ways of remembering it. And so somebody, oh, I went to a shooting reconstruction class, so I know thus and such. I'm like, yeah, so you know, generally that's true. However, and you know, I always go to, well, what are the things that qualify any statement you want to make about the right. evidence? Not it's you know, the overarching of keeping that open mind. Let me ask you one more question about this mental side, because I want to do a transition into a, a, another field of your, your work. But I'm thinking about Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. And the, it begins with the story of this world expert. He goes into Guggenheim Museum, I think, and he sees a Greek statue. And right away, he says, that's wrong. And for the next two years, he convinces himself that actually that is an ancient Greek statue. And five years later, he discovers, no, it's not. He was, his first instinct was right. Do you, as, a, as an investigator, go in and, and kind of breathe the scene, try to figure out what your subconscious is thinking about? T t tell us about that. Uh, I, I do. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I haven't read that book from Malcolm Gladwell, but I've read other books of his. I, I think of a book called The Gift of Fear. And The Gift of Fear talks about you know, the, your, your unconscious reaction to things and how many times it, it is valuable information that we simply don't know how to process, right? Yes. We don't understand it consciously, but this visceral reaction that you have to something is something that you should pay attention to and honor and try to understand better. And so, you know, uh, of course I pay attention to my instincts or my reactions to things in a scene. That's probably the investigative part of me. And, and that's, that's always existed in me. This, I see things that other people don't see. I, I had this tendency to memorize license plates and, and facial features. And, you know, it's useless information that I can tell you that, hey, you know, the car that I saw in Danbury on exit, you know, exit 11 on 84 is still behind me on I-95 in West Haven. Like, that has no use to me. And it occupies valuable brain cells but I can't turn that part of me off. Yes. And I guess I shouldn't because it's, it's a useful part of what I do to, to kind of key in on details and, and hold on to them. But the analytical part of me will not accept that information as truth, right? So, you know, to use the, the, the uh, opening story of Blink, right? I'm, I can't use my gut reaction that something's wrong with the statue as evidence of the conclusion that the statue is from the wrong time period or something like that. It's yes. something to, for me to grapple with and to de, you know, develop a better way of approaching that problem, but I'm gonna honor my reaction to it because generally my reactions are for a particular reason. I just need to understand what that reason is. So and in I'll other words, ready, sorry. You're yeah, I'll give you an example. Please. So you'd, you'd mentioned my, my, my dissertation research and you know, a great piece of advice I was given about my, my dissertation research is to choose something that you're passionate about because that will give you the energy to sustain you to completion. Uh, and, and, you know, I really grappled with, well, what am I going to do? I've always wanted to continue to my, to my PhD. And I always thought, you know, 
I'll come up with a new reagent. You know, did you use the Valentin reagent? You know, or something like that. And and I really struggled with sort of what was my contribution to forensic science going to be? What am I going to do? And a few years ago, I got a phone call uh, to uh, to ask me for my 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 assistance in a case, and it was about a Pakistani journalist who was shot um, outside of a pharmacy. And he, at the time, had been um, investigating governmental abuse. And I, so, I know, I know that case. Keep going, please. And so, um, and the friend who had contacted me works for the Committee to Protect Journalists, and so she had reached out to me. He had been shot outside of a pharmacy, and the official explanation for his death was that it was accidental because of celebratory gunfire. Right? There were government troops shooting their guns in the air. And he is, you know, potentially accidentally killed as a result of this. But yeah, you know, and, the ba- and the background on this is that he had really pulled the scab, not only of government corruption in Pakistan, but the connection between basically the mafia elements of the military and the Taliban. So the very people that the Americans were fighting and the Afghans were fighting in Afghanistan were being backed by elements of the military. He publishes the story, and then he walks into this happy burst of gunfire. Mm-hmm. Sorry to give that background, Peter, but I think that context is is needed. Please carry no, on. That, that, no, that's quite relevant. And and so I did what I normally would do, and I asked for the autopsy report, and I, you know, are there any crime scene photographs, and so on, and so on, and so on. And not surprisingly, you know, the standards to which these items are produced varies around the world. And so I got a very, you know perfunctory, you know, uh, autopsy report. It was, you know, two pages when normally I get 10 or 12 pages and it wasn't, it didn't have any useful information. Uh, and, and, you know, the things that most people think you, you should be looking at, well, what's the path of the bullet through the person? Well, that's not really relevant here because I don't know his orientation at the time he's shot, right? So you can't just say the bullet travels from, you know, shoulder down through chest and that must mean he was shot it, it, you know, the bullet came from overhead. There's lots of ways that that orientation can happen under different circumstances. So our conversation turned into a more theoretical discussion of, well, is it possible for a bullet fired up in the air to fall and kill somebody? And my answer was this very mealy-mouthed, yes, but I don't know the caliber and I don't know the velocity and I don't know the distance and, and right, there's so much that we don't know. And so that question has nagged me for years because when I did the research, it turns out the data that really sort of uh, under, you know, that girds much of the research we do now was gathered about a hundred years ago on terminal velocity and distance traveled and so on and so on. Cause it's, it's a hard thing to replicate as you can imagine. So I found myself wondering, well, is there a better way to evaluate whether or not a bullet traveled a short distance, right? It was, it was fired directly at somebody or it traveled several thousand feet through the air because it was fired straight up, you know, accidentally. Or a sniper or whatever. So what I, have you found out? Well, we're still working through this. I'm still working on developing a method. I'm an appro- and then I'm approaching this two different ways. One is to do it chemically. Is there a, an observable difference between a bullet that's traveled a short distance and a bullet that's traveled several thousand feet. And I use that specifically because a bullet that, you know, 
goes up in the air and then falls and hits terminal velocity has traveled eight, 9,000 feet. Is there an observable difference between those? And when I say observable, it could be, you know, the amount of residue on the bullet, you know, it's a chemical difference. And then secondly, our calculations of terminal velocity are theoretical, right? We assume perfect shapes, you know, we calculate them because it's very hard to, you know, experimentally evaluate terminal velocity in something moving so quickly. And so I'm also looking at this um, empirically. Is the imperfect surface of a bullet, does it, you know, does it affect its terminal velocity? And is that terminal velocity less than what the calculations would indicate? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a transition here. And I'm going to do a transition with another Pakistan crime scene. Possibly the most famous Pakistani crime scene in the last 20 years. And that is Benzir Bhutto, the female prime minister that was campaigning and she was blown up. She was attacked and blown up. All we know is that she was dead in this particular town. New Scotland Yard detectives were called in to do an investigation. They arrived in Pakistan town where she was killed and they discovered not only had the entire crime scene been dismantled, they'd actually put street cleaners through the, the street and just washed it completely clean. The reason why I tell that story um, is because I, we've all seen on the TV shows where guys like you come to the crime scene and, and examine the physical evidence. Talk us through what those New Scotland Yard guys would have been looking for if the Pakistan scene hadn't been cleaned. You know, just, just what do you guys do? You know, you, you, you've got your mind clean, so to speak. You're coming in with no story. What do you do physically? So for that scene in particular, and it's interesting that you bring that up because as you were telling me about that, I was thinking about the Boston Marathon bombing. And I remember I was on, uh, on camera talking about that investigation while it was still unfolding. And I had said in that scene, I said, you know, you need to have detectives go to the rooftops to look for fragments because those fragments would have traveled a great distance and they would have landed in places that are not you know, easily accessible. And those items would have explosive residue that you know, can be used to connect them back to the device. So I would first say that what you told me about that case makes no sense to me and that there would be no value in cleaning the street unless you were trying to, you know, remove body fluids that might have been there from victims who were left there. But this wholesale sort of sanitizing of the scene uh, is completely inappropriate and it makes no sense. There's no value in it. What most people don't realize is that in an explosion, in that kind of high energy event, you do not have consumption of all the material used in the device. A lot of it, or say an, a, a significant amount, right? An amount that you can find rides out that pressure wave, which is the source of the damage, rides out that pressure wave and you will find components of the device and you will find you know, unconsumed material at distances away from the device. Which so, I presume can give you clues as to, you know, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, for example, had a particular trademark way of their explosive devices. The Taliban may have had their own way of doing it, the IEDs. Um, tell us, uh, let's get back to the general question. When you, when you get to a crime scene, what is the first thing you do? Is it, is it tape off the area? Like, like what, how do you do it? What, what do you do? 
So generally for me, that, that should be done when I get there or before I get there. My first thing to do is actually to evaluate, did you make the scene large enough? Because, uh, you know, and I joke about this, I say, well, if it wasn't for trees around houses, how would we ever mark where the crime scene is? Because it just coincidentally always seems to be wrapped around the tree that's, you know, at the perimeter of the house. But you, you realize that's a completely artificial designation, right? Isn't it possible and isn't it actually likely that there's physical evidence that exists beyond the border of the house where the crime occurred? So what I want to do when I get there is to evaluate, is the scene large enough? And, and the way that I tell people to do this, and best thing I teach police officers too, is make the scene large enough that it bothers somebody. You know, if, if you have a crime that occurred uh, in a house in the middle of a residential street, block off the entire street. You can always make the scene smaller as people begin to need access to the environment, uh, as you determine that there's no physical evidence at the edge of your perimeter. But what you can't do is start with a small scene and make it bigger later. Because what do people do when they see crime scene tape? They go right up to the edge of it because they're curious. And so it's that area over the evidence. Exactly. And what I lose the ability to know is, is the condition of this item that's outside the perimeter, what it was when the crime was committed, right? That, that, uh, that chewed up piece of gum, was it there that night or did somebody who showed up to look at the scene drop that gum? And now I, I can't really evaluate it the way I would have otherwise. Now, are you starting on the periphery and moving in and center in, in you're gradually getting towards the body. Is that how you guys work? So you have choices, right? There's, there's options for how you approach scenes. And, and I've, I've heard people talk about, well, you use a spiral search for outdoor scenes. You use a grid search for this. And I was never that, you know, regimented in terms of I did it. You know, I use this search pattern in this environment. I, I, one of the things you want to do is that as soon as you're legally allowed to do so, get in your scene, go right to the heart of it, uh, take some very rudimentary notes, don't form any opinions, don't draw any conclusions about things, but just sort of see what you have. You know, kind and, of like, and you're, you're trying to find that story, are you, or, or something? It's inevitable that you will develop a story, right? Because you realize... I can't know what the evidence is until I know what the story is. Okay. Right? It, it, the, the, the evidence are the words that create the story. Like, I need one to build the other. I need one to understand the other. So I want to walk into the scene to begin to develop the stories because I never want to pick one or just have one as the only viable one. Um, but in a more important way, I want to check the scene to make sure there isn't anything there that's dangerous, anything that is in a state of change, in a state of transition. Because if I wait too long, the change will have happened. The change that would have been useful for me to see has now occurred. And, and there's a great example from you know, a case that's been talked about way too much is the O.J. Simpson case. And it was almost overlooked. One of the patrol officers who showed up at that scene at um, Nicole Brown Simpson's condo wrote in his notes that there was, I think it was a cup of ice cream that, that was still solid on the counter in her kitchen. And that is 
an almost irrelevant piece of information because nobody really thinks of ice cream as being evidence. But it's not the ice cream that's evidence. It's the condition of the ice cream that gives you a piece of information that has relevance. It begins to tell you about time. And if you have taken note of the temperature inside the condo, which should have been done, and you take note of the condition of the ice cream in the kitchen, you now can bracket and say, I know that this crime had to have occurred within this period of time because otherwise the ice cream would have been melted, right? And it's such a simplistic decision or yes. conclusion to draw, but you completely miss the opportunity if you don't get into the scene and look for these sorts of things. And, and how, do you, how do you walk to the center of the scene? You know, you've got blood stains all around. Outside, you've got footprints and tracks. What, did you lay a plank down? How do you get, actually get there? So, it, it, so let's uh, use the scenario of the, of the scene being in a house. So okay. everybody has the same sort of understanding of the environment. <laughs> if I can deduce which way the perpetrator entered and exited the scene, that is not how I want to go into the house. I want to find an alternative path because that confined area, right? If we think about it as a doorway, that is a great source of physical evidence because it's the one place I know that I have my perpetrator twice. Once they enter the house, I don't really know where they went, but I know they, had, they were in the threshold of this doorway once and maybe twice. So I don't want to walk through that doorway any more than I have to and potentially disturb the physical evidence that might exist in the doorway and in the threshold. So I want to find an alternative path into the scene. But once I do, and this is, this is how I did it, and I tell people, pick what works for you. I do everything clockwise. I walk through my scene clockwise, and I don't go right to the blood. I don't go right to the body. I actually ignore all of that. And I force myself to walk through the scene clockwise, regardless of the presence or absence of evidence. And in addition to walking clockwise, I turn my head clockwise. Because it's so easy to get distracted by something. And if I, and, and I think about it, I call it like the, the shiny object method, right? If you don't have the discipline to walk into a scene and ignore the, the really obvious physical evidence, all you're going to do is bounce around to the really obvious things. And you can imagine this diagram you would make, right? These zigzag lines all over the scene. But you missed the ice cream. Right. You inadvertently left out a whole section of the room because there was nothing yes. there that you immediately recognized as having value. So my, my father was a Navy uh, veteran of the Second World War, and he talked about conning. So you, mm -hmm. would, you, would, you would take your binoculars and you would look very slowly in a regular methodical way. So you're doing a similar thing like that. You're avoiding the scene, the entry to the scene, and you're going clockwise and clockwise. And have you got a checklist that you're going through, you know, fingerprints, DNA, this, or are you, at this moment, are you simply just trying to see what is there? At this point, I'm really trying to discern, is there anything that is so pressing that I need to deal with it right now? If there is, I have to devise a plan for dealing with it because ideally, so for instance, we'll, we'll go back to the ice cream for a moment. There's ice cream on the countertop. I don't know if I'm necessarily going to seize the ice cream, although I do have to consider, does the container have physical evidence on it 
that the perpetrator touched it. I don't know. That's possible. But it, the existence of the ice cream takes us out of our normal routine because normally we work from the outside in. But now I can't do that because I have this condition that needs to be dealt with immediately. So I might grab the photographer, get the person who takes measurements, and we're going to go into the scene to do this one thing because it's an emergency, if you will, right? It's a pressing issue that needs to be dealt with immediately. Once we're done with that, we're going to go back out and we're going to resume our normal search pattern, right? Conning, like you mentioned, it's a great way to think about it. And, and one of the difficult things is for you to develop, a, you know, I call it like internal filters. And it, so that I can ignore all the things that I know will eventually occupy my time. And, and this is where a lot of people fail when they're first getting into crime scene investigation. You walk into a scene and it is quite literally sensory overload. All the evidence is in front of you at the same time. You, the smells and the sights of the scene are all hitting you at the same time. And because you know that all of these things are potentially evidence, you, you're, you're just, your eyes are darting all over the room and you're, you're, you're kind of paralyzed. You don't know what to do. And I the presume better, you have the emotion of seeing a dead body and, or, or dead bodies in some cases, yeah, and blood and, and all those awful things. And there's certainly emotion with that, but I would say that most people learn how to separate the emotion from the activity. You know, I, I think about this, we, have any of us ever made a good emotional decision? Probably not, right? And so I, as an investigator, will not make good choices if I go into a scene emotionally, if I look at the victim and I feel bad, right? And it's not that I don't. I mean, I, in fact, I don't think that this is my career, right? I've made my life, you know, the, the pursuit of justice for these people. So I don't think there's anybody who feels that loss more than I do because I've sworn to investigate it. But I also have to recognize that me being emotional about it is an impediment to me solving this event or me understanding what happened. So you have to suppress the emotion so that you can do your job effectively. It, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm contrasting what you're saying, an, an expert, uh, a man that's been in countless crime scenes and countless event scenes that you've then said there wasn't a crime here. And what myself and all our listeners see in CSI or on these forensic movies or TV series, you know, people clattering around with high heels and long hair and the makeup and stuff. Is there one thing that just drives you nuts when you're watching those TV series and like, we don't do that. Or is there something? <laughs> uh, you know, here, and it's probably not even the most significant problem I see, but you'll always see a photographer you know, aimlessly wandering around behind the two detectives who are talking about what happened. And the fact is your, your photography has to be so methodical because it's the only real visual record of everything in that scene. It's the only thing the jurors will ever see. It's the only thing the prosecutor will look at. And you can't haphazardly walk around the scene. You're not on vacation, right? And I think about tourists walking around in the city. And, you know, they're always looking up and they're just randomly taking pictures of buildings that, you know, me as a New Yorker could care less about, you know, and it's that kind of uh, vision that I see in scenes, right? People are just, oh, oh, that looks interesting. Take a picture of that. 
And you know, when you, I mean, let, let, let's share the secret. Do you actually scream at the television screen? Like when you see that? I do. do you, I do. Uh, I thought I do. you do it. I thought fact, you would. I'm the, I'm the last person you want to watch any of those shows with, because not only will I point out all the flaws to you, but the cinematographer in me who understands lighting and, and, and blocking knows that anytime something's in frame, it's for a reason. And I'll usually figure out why and spoil the, you know, the fun for you. So the don't surprise ever ending. Shows with me. Yeah, I, 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 w- I would actually love to watch it. I think it would be absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Let, let, let me make the jump because we're coming uh, to a point when we're almost out of time about teaching students because what is fascinating about our department, our forensic department, is there's a bunch of the older colleagues of ours who actually started doing crime investigation where there was no DNA. There was no, you know, the, all the stuff that we're talking about now would have been science fiction to them when they began their careers. What do you say to the students who are coming into your classroom and your lecture halls now who've been brought up on CSI and they've been brought up on DNA? Is there a different mindset that those guys have? What's, what do you talk to them about? Well, I do. And, and it's not only students, but you know, we, we teach police officers at the Lee Institute. So it's like practitioners who come in and I, I kind of warned them to not rely on DNA. And what we've done, and DNA, of course, revolutionized how we do what we do. Uh, So this is not a a slide on DNA at all or a knock on DNA. But what it has enabled is a sort of, well, the physical evidence will tell the story. We'll just find their DNA. And, And what's lacking a lot of times is the context. Why is the DNA there? Is there an innocuous explanation for the DNA being there? And and let's think about a scenario where the perpetrator has access to the scene before the victim is discovered, right? Before it becomes a scene. You'll find the perpetrator's DNA there, but does that mean anything? What you really care about is the perpetrator at the scene at the time the crime is being committed which actually means we need to find DNA on particular items. And and frankly, the best way to get context is in with a biological fluid. Is the suspect's DNA there in blood? Because now it's not just any time, it's a particular time. It's the 15 minutes in between when the bleeding occurs and the wound scabs over and the bleeding stops or the blood dries. Peter, I'm going to drive our listeners crazy, but I want to, hold that for another podcast. Please come in and talk us through blood splatter and blood investigation. It's a gory uh, topic, but it's absolutely fascinating. So I don't think we can do it justice in a few minutes. So please promise me and the listeners that you'll come back and spend an hour with us talking about blood splains and other elements of detective work. Sure, sure. Be my pleasure. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for, for that promise. And thank you very much for sharing that brilliant mind and those insights. And most importantly, thank you for your work on the, all those different events and crime scenes and bringing that rigor that you have uh, and your pursuit for truth and justice. Thank you. It's Declan here on behalf of all the team here at Crime Waves. Thank you for listening. Please join us for the next episode of To Catch a Killer. And please do subscribe, like, or follow us on social media at crimewavespodcast.com. 
It's massively helpful. Thank you. We'll see you soon.